0: Something beside me, a light to the kerosene, and the places aren't real anymore, and the faces don't
1: say anything in the silent light of the mind
0: blown. A
2: game. Chess Club. Chess Club. Welcome to Devil's Chess Club. I'm Aaron Good. To get early access to episodes of Devil's Chess Club, subscribe to the American Exception Podcast at Patreon. This episode is available to everyone courtesy of Four Died Trying, the new documentary film series which explores the extraordinary lives and calamitous deaths of President John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert F. Kennedy. The next chapter, Chapter 1, should be available any day now, I am told. You can purchase Four Died Trying on Apple TV and other streaming services. Now for some unreported news thanks to Four Died Trying. Malcolm X to formally charge US with human rights violations at UN. This one is very relevant to what's going on today, I would say. Malcolm X has received pledges of support from some new African nations for charges of discrimination against the United States in the United Nations. He gave this information to a group of reporters upon his return from Africa, where he had met with leaders in Algeria, Egypt, Lebanon, Liberia, Morocco, and Senegal. The case, Malcolm told reporters, would compel the United States government to face the same charges at South Africa and Rhodesia. Some people close to Malcolm have warned him that this is a dangerously provocative act, said Malcolm's friend to the civil rights activist Milton Henry. In formulating this policy and hitting the nerve center of America, he also signed his own death warrant. The race issue is particularly sensitive for the U.S. because of the role it has assumed on the world stage following World War II. Back in December of 1951, Paul Robeson and William Patterson presented a petition to the United Nations from the Civil Rights Congress, or CRC. Entitled, We Charge Genocide, the Crime of Government Against the Negro People, signatories included nearly 100 American activists and intellectuals. Paul Robeson led the delegation, which presented the petition to New York headquarters Uh, of the United Nations, CRC Secretary Patterson delivered the petition to a meeting of the UN in Paris. The illustrious scholar and activist W.E.B. Du Bois intended to accompany Patterson, but the U.S. State Department refused to allow Du Bois to leave the country. The petition was a book-length document which charged that over 10,000 black people in America had been lynched during the 85 years which had passed since slavery was abolished. The responses from the U.S. government and media were predictable. The petition was scarcely mentioned or reported on at all, but when it was, the CRC was typically dismissed as a communist front organization. Following the delivery of the petition, Patterson's passport was seized by the State Department officials. Neither he nor Robeson were allowed to leave the country as a consequence of their activism. In the wake of World War II, the U.S. sought to become the leader of the free world. In theory, this meant a shift away from colonialism to liberation. The first state to gain independence was Ghana, led by Kwame Nkrumah. Unfortunately, independence failed to live up to expectations. In 1961, the first elected Prime Minister of Congo, Patrice Lumumba, was assassinated by forces widely understood to be backed by the U.S. and other Western powers. People like Nkrumah and Malcolm X have been speaking of neocolonialism, an exploitative system that maintains Western domination and exploitation without formal colonial regimes. After U.S. diplomats were greeted in formerly colonized countries with people brandishing copies of We Charge Genocide, the U.S. took steps to try to improve its image. As part of these measures, they sent prominent black jazz musicians like Dizzy Gillespie, Duke Ellington, and Louis Armstrong on goodwill tours across the world. During the Suez Crisis of 1956, the US seemed to be so worried about seeming like a colonial despot that Eisenhower spurned US allies, France, Britain, and Israel, and instead backed Egypt's Nasser, a leader for whom the Eisenhower administration had no fondness. There's even reason to surmise that some of the establishment support and media coverage of civil rights and race relations may be influenced by an elite consensus that Jim Crow is doing considerable damage to US prestige in a world where the majority is not white and where many populations have long and terrible memories of white Western domination. This is the political battle that Malcolm has joined. As the U.S. government is urgently trying to improve its image abroad, especially with regard to the treatment of its own non-white populations, Malcolm X is connecting the plight of black Americans to Africa's struggle to end white supremacy on the continent. As Malcolm's own people have warned him, he is now confronting very dangerous and powerful forces. That story is from the Four Died Trying film series. They didn't just kill Malcolm X. They killed the story. We want to correct that. Now Bryce and I will be talking with Sam Husseini. He is an independent journalist who has been piercing through the establishment's falsifications for 25 years. He was one of the main people calling for Israel to be charged with genocide at the International Court of Justice. Sam runs the Husseini Substack, which I will link to in the show notes. Sam Husseini, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Sure thing, gentlemen. Good to be
2: with you. So, you were the person uh, that I noticed more than anyone else talking about the imperative of invoking the Genocide Convention as genocide was unfolding in Gaza. And now the trial has actually begun. Uh, What are your thoughts at this? uh, You know, pretty early on in the process, but it's not a long, it's not going to be a long trial anyway. Um, what do you think about the way this is, has unfolded so far?
0: Well, it, the whole thing will be long. Um, but um, part of the reason that I was pushing for this uh, from October onwards is that um, you, you have uh, you know, uh, provincial uh, orders um, that the um, International Court of Justice can issue. Um, so they could, within the next week or two, Um issue an order uh saying that israel must halt its military campaign Um i'm not saying that they will do that but that is within the realm of serious possibility um
2: uh, Like a cease and desist Correct on the genocide effectively effectively
0: um So this took Longer than I hoped it would um, but it did happen um and you know it felt like an out-of-body experience for me the whole time because you know i have so much i want to say and write about israel i mean i'm palestinian american i've been you know thinking about this my whole life but i ended up you know kind of you know helping you know lead on uh, effectively a, a grassroots campaign to invoke the genocide convention and that that seemed to be the most tangible important thing to be done um and 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 it you know, it eventually did pay off. Um, You know, South Africa, they had a, I got word maybe six weeks ago that they had a um, cabinet meeting. The uh, parliament had just, uh, you know, uh, said we we, want to completely cut off relations with Israel, not just simply recall our ambassador. And they were considering moving on that. And I heard that they were considering invoking the genocide convention. So I was you know, six weeks ago thinking, Oh my God, they're, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. Uh, and then it didn't happen. And so I was very disappointed, um, started focusing on some Latin American countries. Um, and then, you know, I was totally surprised when it finally happened in very late December. Um, but you know, very, very grateful. I, I don't know if they ordered that the draft start cause it's such an extensive draft draft. It's 84 pages. There were some things that I wished were in there, um for example there's nothing about the hannibal directive in there
2: so south africa they you got word that they were going to you were tipped off that they were thinking about this beforehand
0: yeah yeah that they were considering it at a cabinet meeting um yeah i mean i i you know everybody that i knew that you know had some connection to south africa i would reached out to as much as i possibly could um And, um, uh, so when it finally happened, I was, you know, delighted and, you know, floored and, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, that, 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 that it finally did get done because I'd, I'd kind of half given up on, on South Africa doing it, even though it was my first choice.
2: Yeah. Why do you think that, I mean, there's obvious answers, but what's your take on why it was South Africa that actually did it?
0: Well, I think it was a combination of things, Um, the the shared experience with apartheid, uh, the legacy and the statements that people still remember of Mandela and uh, Desmond Tutu in solidarity with the Palestinians, Uh, the fact that Israel and and apartheid South Africa were joined at the hips in many ways. Um, There's not as much consciousness, I think, in South Africa about that um, as there should be, but there's still some, um, and I, hopefully that's being revived, uh, now. Um, and they have a very capable legal team. Um, uh, John Dugard, um, uh, was one of the main lawyers, um, uh, at the, at the hearings who I'd had some interaction with. Um, and, um, so it was a combination of things. And, and I think geopolitically with, you know, BRICS um and south africa attempting to assert itself in this way i mean you know I, I mean i think that it was largely done out of solidarity and out of a reflection of the popular will of the country um, but in terms of soft power um that this was a smart move you know i mean you know the goodwill that south africa has brought here and you know literally flipped the world um You know, I I did a blog entry after it with, you know, a map with, you know, the south on the top and the north on the bottom with South Africa at the top. And that's one way to look at the world. And I think that's kind of what we see going on here.
2: Right. It's really a stark divide between the countries that have supported this and then the ones that don't. It's the white world is not on the side of justice here, though. It's it's. Such bad optics. It, this is the kind of thing the U.S. actually used to sort of care about. Like it's why Eisenhower backed Nasser during the Suez Crisis. But Zionism has metastasized in the U.S. establishment, you know, in the intervening years. I think, especially after Kennedy gets killed, mm-hmm. um, some things happen in the right. up on Mount Olympus of the deep state or whatever. And Israel has a different. Position in this, and it, and it changes again after H.W. Bush, I think. So it's like yeah, it yeah. just keeps it just keeps getting worse in that way. But it's making us look worse.
0: Yeah, it's making the U.S. government look worse because it, it is worse in a lot of ways. I mean, the you, you mentioned Suez in '56. I mean, that's kind of very analogous to what's going on now with um, uh, with Yemen. And here we have, the, you know, Biden unconstitutionally bombing Yemen, uh, when the, basically what the Houthis are saying that they're doing is, um, you know, trying to force a ceasefire, which the you know, uh, you know, ninety-five percent of the UN says that it wants, um, uh, and um, so there's the, 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 there so many, and, and I mean it really brings home that in some ways you know decolonization at least in the middle east and you know arguably in other areas never was complete oh Uh, yeah absolutely i mean kwame
2: Nkrumah, he wrote that he wrote the book on it and then they deposed him a year later for writing the book on it he wrote that like you know colonialism is becoming neo-colonialism it's economic exploitation just with informal rule and cia covert operations etc to achieve the same effect and then they overthrew him the next year for that.
1: Uh Uh So uh uh, so when we look at this South Africa business, when we look at uh, they actually invoked the Genocide Convention, uh, it gave a brief explanation of it based on some of the work that you did. But can you explain in detail what it actually means uh, for this convention to have been invoked uh, and what it means for the disagreements within that body and how it will play out uh like over the next weeks and also over the long term
0: um so the genocide convention is a major treaty uh it just had its 75th birthday um uh, that it doesn't seek to just simply punish genocide but to prevent it um, so arguably a country could invoke it against another country that's also a, a, a party to the treaty um uh you know I, I, if it looks like there might be a genocide you know uh, because the whole point is we're going to prevent this from happening um and so the united states is also a party to it but the united states and several other countries have a reservation on article 9 of the treaty which um has to do with whether or not they would accept adjudication by the International Court of Justice. Neither South Africa nor Israel has have a reservation on that uh, article. Um, so therefore, South Africa could invoke it and could sue Israel and bring it before uh, the International Court of Justice. Uh, th- that is to say you can't necessarily do this same procedure uh, against the United States, uh, yeah. if it were to um, uh, c- conduct a genocide. Um, so um, uh, and so the the hardest part of this, and you know the, the uh, South African case was very serious and very intensive in terms of the actions that Israel took, the background in terms of prior attacks on. Uh, Gaza, the pattern of deceit in terms of the nature of those prior attacks, citing previous UN reports, um, and they went through, um, in their oral arguments, as well as in their written documentation, a long list of statements by Israeli officials, um, uh, that articulated the genocidal intent uh, of the Israeli leaders. Um, so you Israeli soldiers echoing uh, in virtually identical language uh, the genocidal intent and that's usually the hardest part of genocide to prove because genocide part of it is it's it's a, it's a mental state um, but i think that south africa was able to do that i, I don't you know I, i'm not a lawyer but i've been talking to a lot of international lawyers um they're they're very impressed uh, i do think that there were some limitations in terms of what south africa did i kind of alluded to the hannibal directive um they didn't get into that which allows israel to pretend that it cares so much about its own citizens um
2: right i mean because that's that that was i didn't we were talking about this and we had technical issues but did that article come out today in that big israeli newspaper about um they were supposed to release something today it was posted yesterday that the whatever the maybe the biggest newspaper in Israel they were going to write about how there was an officer who says there was an order to make sure that they did not escape with hostages. Like it seemed more confirmation that essentially, even if they didn't use the name, it was like basically invoked. And it calls into question whether there even was a Hamas massacre of Israelis at all. Like they may have, it may be that the massacre of Israelis was from the IDF.
1: Yeah, the, uh, the 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 website was Ynet, which is the English language version of, uh, uh, yeah, I believe it's it's like Yehudiath Aranat, uh, and they uh, and they said yesterday that they were planning to release a documentary. I believe it was that went into some of these details about how Israeli soldiers had orders to ensure that no civilians made it to Gaza by any means, and this was after you know many. Palestinians, including Hamas and other factions, were using, you know, vehicles to transport these people back, and the orders were not to let them go back. And so when you saw those pictures of those deformed, warped metal cars, right. and they tried to say that Hamas did that, uh, well, the evidence seems to point to, and this uh, website, uh, this, this organization, it seems to confirm that this was the result of direct Israeli orders not to allow civilians to go back to gaza and so uh, but you're yeah, saying this
2: that was, this this screenshot here is from the the thing uh this is from the ynet site so the order prevent terrorists from returning to gaza quote at all costs even if they have hostages with them so yeah you're right yet you know what so i was wondering if that had come out today but either way that just seems to confirm the speculation of people, because why would Hamas take all these hostages back, and then we get these reports of them saying they were treated well, etc.? But then they're they're like raping and dismembering people, like some, some scene from Dante's Inferno or some shit. It's like uh, it never made any sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it was clear that you know from early on with the whole beheaded babies stuff that there was a massive propaganda effort. And i would argue that that actually is part of the genocidal intent right you know you you put out those horror stories in order to justify the bombing that you know you're going to do that's going to result in huge amount of carnage so you want people to accept that you're doing the carnage so you put out these stories about oh these hamas monsters beheaded 40
1: babies um so now south africa didn't include that in their genocidal intent portion I don't think they did. I don't think they did. did. No. I mean,
0: they they included references to prior U.N. reports about falsehoods that Israel has done, for example, um, uh, claiming that Israel Israel claimed that uh, Hamas fired rockets or some militant group fired rockets uh, from hospitals uh, and and you know after the fact the UN group went in there and found no evidence of that but they did find evidence that Israel um, had itself used human shields um, so it's in Palestinian civilians as human shields um, so you know they got at that but not at the entire you know fabric of the propaganda uh, that that was you know I would say a limitation of the South African case extensive as it was mm-hmm
1: it Also would have made it twice as long,
0: yeah, no, I mean, it was very long, it was very extensive, but you know, I'm just saying that you know, especially them not talking about the Hannibal directive, it allowed Israel in their defense in their hearing um on Friday morning uh to claim that they care so much. Uh, about their own people, when you know, if that had been put on the table, that would have undermined um, that Israel, ca- the, the Israeli government's case. I think.
1: I see, and you do have people like Israel defenders today. Uh, I saw one clown talking about how it's so great that this convention is uh, was invoked, and that Israel gets to plead its case to the entire world, and because uh, he's talking about well, however much death, destruction, horrid language that you can pull from the Israelis. There's a section of the public that will say that that's okay, as long as you're doing it to defend your people from a legitimate terrorist threat. And what you're saying that South Africa has done is, you know, not intentionally, but sort of not undermine that aspect of the Israeli conduct. They've only talked about the horrible statements and the horrible actions, but not undermine the stated justification. Right. I don't think South
0: Africa has done anything to question the dominant narrative about October 7th. They just simply denounced Hamas's actions and they said that uh, Hamas is not a government, so it's not a party to the Genocide Convention. And that's why they wouldn't and couldn't bring charges against Hamas. Um you know, there there was you know, it's not before the court to say you know, a was Hamas actually, you know, has it has it actually done what it's charged with doing, and you know, did, does it have a justification for um, you know being an armed resistance group or the like? That 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 is not before the court, and no one made that argument. Um, although the the South Africans did make the argument that. Um, Israel as an occupying power has no right of self-defense, uh, per se, as you know, Israel has a right of self-defense if it was attacked by Syria or whatever. Uh, but it doesn't have a right of self-defense to, as, as a legal construct, uh, when dealing with territory that it occupies, it has, it can exercise lawful action to, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, Bring back order after an attack like October seventh, but it has no legal right of self-defense, and they made that point very sharply.
1: Yeah, and that really—I uh, mean, that's an important. Of the, um... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that—that's an important advancement in, uh, especially the discourse here in America about Israel's quote-unquote right to defend itself. I mean, that's like the, uh, the golden line. Yeah, uh, but I do have a question about whether or or is there a legal forum where that question of uh, Hamas's actions can be adjudicated, given their status as a non-state actor?
0: Well, let me answer that, but just me make one other point on the right to defend itself. The, the, I, I asked about this twice at the State Department, in particular, the, the Geneva Conventions, uh, which are supposed to apply in an occupied territory, and they wouldn't say that they recognize the US State Department, that they recognize the Geneva Convention as applying to occupied Palestinian territory, which it obviously does. And they just keep repeating, it has the right to defend itself. So if you parse it out, that's kind of their way of saying the Geneva Conventions don't apply um, because it has the right to defend itself. But if the Geneva Conventions did apply, if you recognize it as occupied territory, then they then it wouldn't have a right to self-defense. So that, that line, that it has a right to self-defense, is actually more insidious than, than it seems, I think. Mm. Well, it's
2: um, also absurd because the the blockade is an act of war, and so can Gaza defend itself against a, an act of war, which is ongoing? The blockade is an yeah. ongoing act Yeah, of war, I don't know To how where would... I don't even understand. There was no peace. If you're under blockade, which is an act of war, there's no peace that is breaking in the first place when they It'd have the jailbreak from their concentration camp. It's like uh, it, it. There's no clear-cut legal way to even think of this as an interstate conflict and exactly how to apply it because it's actually so twisted to begin with. I mean, the whole. It's amazing that it's the situation is was allowed to exist so long up to this point. Anyway,
0: yeah. I mean, it is insane that the situation uh, was allowed to exist as long as it has, and part of that goes to what Bryce was saying about you know what what form would be the appropriate form. Well. The, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, should have moved on Israel-Palestine years and years ago, and it's done nothing but, you know, you know, pretend that it's going to do something maybe, and then never do anything. Um, and it's, you know, gone after some African leaders, and then it, it went it went after Putin, and it's basically acted as an instrument of U.S. NATO policy, even though the U.S. isn't a signatory to it. Um, so, you know, this, I mean, if you do have a, a, action by meaningful action, critical of Israel by the international court of justice, that presumably puts far more pressure on the international criminal court, which can go after individuals, not just States, mm. but, you know, um, to finally act, um, and fulfill its function. You have a a corrupt british barrister as the prosecutor there now basically um uh, uh other things that could happen if there is a finding highly critical of israel uh is that um it'll go to the un security council the us either will say that the diplomatic costs are too grave or it'll veto again um and then you could see South Africa at the U.N. General Assembly lead an insurrection of sorts. Um, you know, you have the Uniting for Peace Resolution. This is how the U.S. was able to get the Korean War done despite the Soviet veto. Um, you know, you, you had, you know, the, the, you
2: know. The, I thought the Soviets abstained from that one because of um, they were protesting like the China, Taiwan. Are you uh, saying that's how the war was ended?
0: Maybe that's how it was ended, but okay. the, the 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 U.S. fought the Korean War under UN flag,
2: right? But they, my understanding was that uh, it, Stalin and the Russian Soviets did not veto the Security Council action because they were not they were taking a, they were somehow boycotting the UN or something over the inclusion of of. Taiwan, or the failure to include the People's Republic of China, and and that's you that was why Russia didn't veto it. But that that's for the beginning of the war. I don't. Maybe you're talking about something that happened at the end. Maybe I, end I don't it.
0: know the parsing of it exactly, but I know that it had yeah. to do with uniting for peace. So right.
2: So yeah. there wasn't. My point was that there wasn't a veto in the. Oh, to, maybe there was the a veto but because I mean, the I... Soviets weren't a part of it. They weren't in, They weren't actually in there, which was a weird thing
0: you might be you might be right I mean I I was just referring to even the threat of a veto but in any case but
2: but you're saying that they have they may try something in I mean this is something that I've been wondering is if this if they turn back in the the evidence seems so overwhelming in this case because as you say the harder part is trying to prove intent but there's just so much of it that you can come up with enough to prove it just by looking at Twitter and TikTok for for 20 minutes I mean it's uh it's out there so if they if basically you know a u.s and zionist power you know, white power basically is it enough to carry the day here in the face of global opinion and all this evidence could it eventually lead to something like what you're saying a revolt in the u.n of some kind or a of the eventual creation of a parallel like a you know they wouldn't want to withdraw from the u.n but maybe create another international organization that just has like every state except for the west because the west is just lawless and you can't w- cooperate with it with the west
0: yeah i mean that there's i mean it does seem in many respects that we're at a tipping point here um you know i, I mean if the international court of justice does nothing um despite south africa's extraordinary case and despite you know the, the parallels um you know and they their you know, noting what the court did in terms of Ukraine and in terms of Myanmar and so on, then that tremendously undermines the court um, and the entire UN system. Um, uh, If they do do something, the US tries to stop it, then you're going to see an attempted insurrection using uniting for peace at the um, General Assembly. The General Assembly could do several things. It could suspend Israel, um, as it did for South Africa. Um, it could admit Palestine is a full member, uh, trying to protect it as a state. It could set up a tribunal. Um, since the, I- if the ICC is not going to do its job, you had previous tribunals, uh, created by the security council, uh, on Rwanda and Yugoslavia. Um, but there's nothing stopping the general assembly from Um, creating a tribunal which would go after individuals so you you know this could be a significant step in cracks in the u.s dominated world order um, that you know gives rise to either meaningful reform at the u.n or as you say saying this whole thing is completely rigged it's all a farce and there need to be some other structures
1: so you, you mentioned the requirement that if anything was to be enforced, the security council would be, uh, you know, uh, need to endorse it. And the U S of course has a veto power there. Uh, but even if we, oh, there's a siren, uh, but even if we, uh, don't, even if we step back from that and just stick with the ICJ, what exactly has to happen for the ICJ to rule, uh, in favor of South Africa's motion to, uh, you know, halt the conflict, like an emergency pause, uh, what has to happen for that? And what are the forces pushing on either side of it? And like, how do you assess the relative strength of that?
0: Um, all I can tell you is what people who know more than I have said, most of the international lawyers that I've talked to, um, are optimistic that the court will issue a ruling highly critical of Israel and grant South Africa provisional measures to um, halt or uh, at least in some way mitigate Israel's attack. Um, uh, They're looking at the law. They're looking at how the court has operated in the past. In 2004, it did issue a ruling highly critical of Israel, but it was an advisory opinion. This is more than that um, on, on the wall. Um, uh, it could. Um, it, there are other people who look at this more critically and more in terms of real politique and just say, look at the countries on the court and you're you know, you got the U.S. and Britain have representatives. The U.S. happens to be president right now. Um, Uh, They assess that perhaps China and Russia will not um, prosecute uh, 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 Israel because they are afraid of the court going after them and they want to stifle any move from the court. I don't know if that's a good read or not. But, you know, if you go through the countries, it's, it's not the, you know, it's not the most ideal set of countries that have been elected uh on the court you know uh, so some people are thinking that you know you really only got out of the 15 people seven which are probably going to vote for you know for south africa's action uh and then you may or may not get one or two more than that that that's sort of a real politique reading of it and that that's fairly pessimistic Uh, the lawyers who Look at the court and more uh, as more of an actual instrument of actually doing what it's supposed to do, or far more optimistic.
2: All right, that's just a question of like, are they being politically naive? Because this is I mean, the the whole. I mean, the the U.S.'s M.O. has been to bla- brazenly violate the law and then just rig everything, so there's no possible way to hold them accountable. Totally, and, and- you. Will they be able to do that this time?
0: Yeah. And we don't know what kind of other levels of control that are go- going on here. I mean, I t- this week I kept thinking about the Catherine Gunn case where the U.S. did a spy surge on U.N. Security Council members during the buildup of the Iraq invasion in 2002, 2003, uh, where they were basically trying to get, you know, personal information that they could use as leverage against the uh Representatives uh, at the UN Security Council to try to get them to vote uh, to authorize the invasion of of Iraq that failed. But only because Catherine Gunn, a British whistleblower, uh, working at the British equivalent of the NSA, you know, blew the whistle on it. And so that effort effectively collapsed. And so they never got their second resolution. And you had Bush just go into Iraq without the promised second resolution. Just, you know, saying so. Diamond has got 48 hours to get out. Of Baghdad and that's how the war started if people remember so
2: you know they well, they, they told they told Bustani they were going to kill him right the yeah. Blanc, J- John Bolton Bolton and, oh well right? no problem there he can still go on and be a public official somewhere he's a yeah right. I mean it's like a mob boss like yeah totally <laughs>
0: so this is this is a pivotal thing I mean South Africa is in effect trying to say no the law actually matters and we're not gonna
1: deal that way anymore you know, th- this reminds me of uh, a little bit. We're talking about different uh, outside pressures uh, affecting the actual functioning of these institutions. It reminds me of the aftermath of the 2008-9 Lead attack, the first major Israeli attack on Gaza since, uh, since Hamas became in charge. Uh, after after uh, the, you know, the dust had settled, the UN Human Rights Council... Uh, they, they had a, a South African jurist, uh, Richard Goldstone, uh, in charge of a team to write a report. Uh, and this was a, a major part of uh, Norman Finkelstein's book on Gaza, which is excellent. Uh, but this report was devastating against Israel. In fact, the Israelis were talking about it like it was an existential threat to Israel, that they, these crimes had been exposed. And uh, uh, their exposure was endorsed by Richard Goldstone, who was South African, uh, but also a Zionist. He was an ardent supporter of Israel. And uh, even, even though the report you know, criticized Hamas uh, quite a bit, the obvious uh, effect of reality was that Israel would bear most of the criticism. And after this report came out, uh, you know, people were freaking out about it in Israel and in America. Uh, but uh, months after this report came out, Goldstone penned an op-ed in the Washington Post, Saying that he recanted the conclusions of the report, he said that Israel actually didn't uh, target civilians. Israel actually wasn't, uh, you know, this lunatic country that tried to punish, humiliate, and terrorize the people of Gaza. And he said that he made this decision after new evidence had come to light. Finkelstein, in his book, goes through systematically and looks at anything that could be considered new evidence, and you know, pretty much dismantles that argument entirely. Uh, but Goldstone recanted. And so the political moment that could have been a reckoning for Israel was then, you know, uh, pissed away. And some people have speculated that Goldstone might have been the victim of some sort of blackmail or pressure or coercion. I talked to someone who said that uh, uh, it could have been even as mundane as like his daughter's scholarships or something like that. But uh, I mean, what what do you think about that case and, uh, how does that inform your view of what's going on now?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I remember the case basically as, as you outlined it, I, I don't know that I have anything, you know, a lot more to add, you know, we just, there's so many black boxes going on here that we can't see inside of as to what the levers for control are. Um, I mean, you know, you have the whole, you know, Epstein paradigm um, that, you know, may well influence some aspects of, of things. Um,
2: I think uh, they have dirt on the on the US establishment that we couldn't, that we cannot even imagine. But I, I I, think that they have, it's like a Faustian thing. I think that at some points we know the stuff that, that Walton Mearsheimer put in their book. And I think that that's all accurate. And it's frightening enough and you see how, yes, the Zionist influence in foreign policy has led the US to abandon realism and to pursue foolish imperialist policies, not just deadly and whatever, but like stuff that's not even good from an imperialist perspective of like cost benefits, right? But on top of that, you have the the things that you talk about, like Epstein and so on. And that may just be the, I mean, it's like calling it the tip of the iceberg is funny because it's all so covert anyway, but it seems that the u.s because the u.s has this tendency or this tradition of pragmatic one of outsourcing the clandestine chicanery to other places where it's even more opaque than if it were at the u.s and i think that that one consequence of the investigation of the 70s was they relied even more on outside entities so who knows how often they have just sort of like you know relied on this sort of faustian thing like that israel oh we can do these things these things that you need to get done horrible criminal things but because the israel the israelis are so fanatic fanatical i mean they're just they're they're in more and they're worse than the u.s imperialists because they're just focused on making money and you know corporate profits and maintaining it forever the, the israelis have a crazy metaphysic and then they could get blackmail potential in a in a sense like johnny Rosselli tried to blackmail that's what ended up getting him killed but for a while he was blackmailing people over the castro cia uh assassination plots in Kennedy and you know he played that game for a little while he ended up chopped up in a barrel uh in Key Biscayne but if he had that kind of power just as a low-level mob guy imagine what the, the Israelis have with their backers with so much money and everything else and the whole and the state behind them the state of Israel and its network of intelligence assets and everything else and the, the fact that it's intertwined with the U.S. I mean it's horrifying
0: it is. Um, it is. And uh, I mean, again, this could be a tipping point for, you know, if some mechanisms of law can start to be applied, then we got to unravel each and every one of those things and drag everything out into the sunlight and um, you know, from, you know, money in politics. I mean, Biden is the number one recipient of APAC money uh, for years and years and years to and that know, may be a, not even
2: capturing it all to either i mean the money of other corporate people that would present on paper as being money from this or that sector of the economy but mm-hmm. it's really people that are dedicated to this i mean that's there's true. all sorts of chicanery there that's totally it's a true. terrible the system is so vulnerable to this totally kind okay. of thing it's
0: we could be understating uh money with respect to israel um in many respects that's a great point um um,
1: yeah. This brings me uh, to another point. We talk about this as a pivotal moment. And, you know, we know that Israel can't continue to operate unless it has the support of the United States in the form that it has. Uh, but, you know, there might become a point where that support is seriously challenged, even if we. Uh, or where it doesn't it,
2: matter because of the position of the U.S.
1: Well, even if we take a step back and uh, take a step back from the inter intertwining of the Israeli and American establishments Uh, just looking at Israel by itself. I mean, it has a, I don't want to say a Trump card, but it has a, a a secret weapon. That's not so secret, uh, but a a nuclear program that Mm -hmm. they, it's the the
2: worst secret secret weapon ever. Yeah.
1: the, The worst kept secret weapon ever, but they have a nuclear program that they can use to deter any serious action to deter Israel, so right. like let's say in we're in a fantasy world, and the U.S. decides uh, to endorse a U.N. Security Council resolution halting the Israeli attack on Gaza. Let's say they get together a U.N. force uh, to you know stop Israel or to defend Gaza or to you know do something. Israel has nuclear weapons that they can use, and uh, reports seem to indicate that. They're willing to use them if they felt that there was a threat to their freedom of action with respect to the Palestinians. Uh, yeah. The podcast True Anon, did a uh, two-part series on it. I don't know if you've seen it, Sam, but uh, I haven't seen that. Yeah, they, they they talk about this issue quite a bit, and it seems to loom large over any any discussion uh, about Palestine. Which is that even if we get everything we want here in the United States, the end of support, it still doesn't necessarily solve the problem. of a a fanatical regime with nuclear weapons who seems to be willing to use them. I mean, it seems to be the nightmare that the U.S. uh, that they projected onto places like North Korea and Iran and and other states. But it seems to be most applicable to the state of Israel. Yeah, yeah. I know you've done a lot of work on that.
0: Yeah, I have. Um, And mostly I've, you know, attempted to just... You know confront it head on you know and i at the state department and um i used to you know do these washington stakeout things in front of sunday morning talk shows and i would ask these congressmen you know do you acknowledge that israel has nuclear weapons arsenal and virtually none of them would uh, ever acknowledge it and it just shows the incredible uniformity of uh, the u.s establishment it shows that members of congress are just reading the script given to them by the state department or some other entity. Um, and, um, it, you know, it, it it really, it made me totally unsurprised because, you know, when you really think about it, what you're talking about is that we're not going to acknowledge that Israel can blow up the planet. We're not going to acknowledge that they could dust Baghdad and Damascus and Cairo and Moscow and, uh, London and God knows where else, if they really wanted to. The Samson Uh, option. Right. Yeah. Right. The Samson option outlined by Chomsky. Always
2: some crazy old Testament shit with these people, man. I I really am. I'm tired of
0: this. (laughs) Um, so, I mean, the Samson option was basically saying that, that they, that Israel could dust Moscow in order to cause global war if they felt their back was to the wall um um and that would mean you know that, that that would mean that that is that russia would then attack the u.s uh as reprisal so it would also destroy the united states
2: yeah, um, just nuclear winter it would kill everybody yeah um so which for them i think that I, there's a segment of them that would be like well we'll risk it we have to have a credible deterrent like they they're they're more they they're, it's worse than *Strangelove* because *Strangelove* didn't—you saw what happens in *Doctor Strangelove*, and none of them—it was plausible, and it almost happened in the U.S. Like literally, I mean, Ellsberg has written about how it was basically a documentary, and they're not even the level of insanity of the of the Zionists. I mean, it's—it's it's a real thing.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. So. So what could know, be a solution
0: there? <laughs> could be, I mean, you know, I mean, what I've tried to do is just, you know, highlight the insanity of the U.S. policy that refuses to acknowledge that Israel's nuclear weapons arsenal and confront that head on repeatedly to shame them into saying that this, this is an untenable policy. Um, you know. But they
2: don't, uh, the thing about that aspect of it, the, the the denial of it that really annoys me is because when, when it's explained why they're denying it and it's like, oh, because there's this law that says this and that. And I'm thinking like, but. That doesn't matter for anything else the U.S. does. If there's a law or a right. treaty of yeah. this, I don't I mean, know what the real reason is. It's just a, is. it's a bizarre. I mean, it's, it's almost like they're doing it just to just to do it for like a weird, sadistic thing of like they want to just make people dance and laugh at them or something. It's very weird.
0: Yeah. No. I, I mean, I've looked at the, you know, there's supposed to be a funding cut off to nuclear proliferators, but the the president could issue a override on that every six months if he wanted to. Uh, so I don't know what the actual reason is for this. Incredible U.S. policy, but it did. I mean, the fact that that threat exists, and we're talking, you know, genocide and omnicide.
2: Omnicide. Yeah, that threat heavy, is there. Pretty heavy
0: from Israel. It made me not surprised at what we've seen the last three months. Right, that that Israel could conduct a genocide, and U.S. establishment could pretend it's not happening, and so on. Because for years and years, they pretended that Israel didn't have a nuclear weapons arsenal. <laughs> right so there's no ethical limit there's no empirical limit on what these people will or will not be able to see uh you know you can literally prove something to them uh and they still will pretend that they can't see it
2: yeah Um, they're not invincible though that's that's what i'm what as i think about it now even as i game it out in my mind and i think like okay they what if nobody stops israel and they're able to just wipe out gaza turn it into high-rise condos I don't know how they, they win in the long run with this because the, the overall trends are still for a decline of U.S. hegemony and the, at which point the U.S. will lose its big bully protector and those, the rest of the countries around them are going to get more wherewithal because they're developing their there's an alternative system to the U.S. It, it just doesn't seem in the long run that Israel is sustainable on this way. Like they actually if they were smart, I think they would go for a two state solution immediately.
0: Well, you know, again, that depends on how insidious you think these elements are. Um, I think that there could be a very high level of insidiousness to it. And this might be actually not irrational, but diabolical. Um, Let's, you know. How
2: how would that play out? Because Uh, that's uh, what I am. I don't know how this can unfold because it seems like they've painted themselves into a corner.
0: Yeah, let me give you a thought experiment. I mean, I've always considered Israel as sort of the last remaining thread of outright settler colonialism, European settler colonialism, right? You know, you, you you had it basically stop. You still have neo-colonial policies and so on, methods of control and corporatization and so on, but you don't have European settler colonialism anymore, except in Israel with this new pretext of, um, you know, oppressed Jews. Um, which I think is actually kind of similar to—I'm uh, not an expert in colonial history, but I mean, the U.S. was colonized by oppressed religious minorities, right? Uh, I mean, that—that's that, what was used to colonize um, no, no North North America. Um, well, it but was, it
2: case... was to sort of to deal with the, the enclosure movement and capitalism. That's why they—that's why they started. They went to Ireland first because you know, they started using the land for sheep. And so they were like, what do you do with these extra people? They wrote policy papers on it, like the think tanks of the day in the 50s in the and 1600s. They're like, we could unburden the realm by colonizing the new world. And that's what they did in Ireland. And they went to the U.S. So it was a, it, for as vicious as they were, they also had the sense of like, we've been screwed over back home. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, right. Which is kind of what, you know, Jew, Jews, you know, what the mindset is uh, in terms of, of Jewish migration to Palestine. Um, but so let's conduct a, a thought experiment. I mean, look, we just went through a pandemic, right? I happen to think it came out of a lab, uh, or I think that, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I know that there was a massive propaganda effort to pretend it couldn't have come out of a lab, uh, which makes me highly suspicious that there's a lot of insidious conduct going on here. I've also examined uh, the 2014 Ebola outbreak. Um, uh, and uh, there's a very strong case that that had lab origin as well. Um, and of course, you had the anthrax tax. The, the system is completely diabolical. I, I don't think that, that we should rule out the possibility that in the coming um, years or decades that you could have you know, covert bio-warfare uh, that attempts to target uh, third world peoples, uh, and that you have a massive um, uh, resurgent outright colonialism. Uh,
2: I mean, they kind of needed to one that targets the first, first world, world as well.
0: <laughs> it, could, it could well. I mean, it could well.
2: Um, I mean, that you know, seems I, to be the way it was played in, in the U.S. Whether that was by design or not, like they did seem to have a pre-existing agenda for like social political control that they did everything to impose, whether it was a test run for something or whether they really thought that these things could be institutionalized. I don't know. But the fact that it's also happening as US hegemony is crumbling is disturbing as with the what Israel is doing, because that seems related. Also, it seems like they understand the umbrella of US primacy, unipolarity is closing. And so they think we better clean house while we have a chance.
0: That's possible. It's possible that they got to you know, seize their opportunity when they have it, when the U S still has some primacy, but it's also possible that they collectively have a longer term strategy in terms of control, um, in, in, terms of, you know, actually using things like bioweapons and other weapons, um, in, you know, in, in addition to, you know, using them, not just as methods of control, but actually implements of killing um um yeah so you know that that that's there that's there so i i don't know that they're necessarily being stupid um or short-sighted they could just be even more diabolical than they might initially seem
2: well they could be doing both i mean they could be taking it to another level because of desperation but ultimately they've lost their ability to determine outcomes as we've seen with iraq and syria afghanistan ukraine that they're not they they're, they don't seem to be able to game things out but they have to pursue these things to for the prime directive of unipolarity right but they so that's what to, that's what to me is scary that they may have another plan and it may be crazier and more dangerous and it, but also just as stupid and doomed to fail but like they don't care because their overriding imperative has been we have to dominate we have to be the empire in charge
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't completely view Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria as uh, in Libya as failures in their book. I mean, I mean, I guess the U.S. Empire would love it if everybody, you know, lay prostrate before them and worship them, you know, completely. Well, that's not going to happen. So they would much rather have failed states you know, weak, uh, completely weakened Syria, completely in, you know, chaotic Libya, uh, a, a, a completely hobbled Iraq uh, and, and a fundamentally enslaved Egypt. Um, and uh, they're, they're playing footsie with the Saudis and all of the other Gulf shakedoms, which are kind of proxies in some respects for US power. Um, so that, th- that, that could be the best thing that they could have hoped for, uh, under the circumstances, given what they're trying to do and how diabolical they are. You know, um, we, we mentioned earlier uh, before we started the, you know, the clean break thing that Richard Pearl wrote for Netanyahu, right. Um, to, to, to basically say, you know, if Israel's going to dominate with us co cooper- you know, you know hand hand in glove with the u.s we we got to go after these uh these different countries and that that you know it's pretty pretty close to what happened in the intervening years so um they you know it's it's i mean it's totally opposite of what they say they want the mantra is the u.s wants stability no it doesn't it wants instability um that it wants democracy no it doesn't it wants autocrats and you know governments that are incapable of doing anything to stand up to it Um, but
2: but what's happened is not i mean bringing together iran iraq having a peace treaty between saudi arabia and iran these are not what the neocons wanted that's not what the clean break strategy wanted they didn't want to unify yeah. the world against the, they didn't want to unify the region against israel which is what has happened well i don't Although know it's that it's so much what happened it hasn't mean, fully again, happened this
0: is south africa south africa filed i mean i i haven't you know you know jordan might issue a declaration to back up south africa they, they haven't done it yet i haven't heard anything i think discussion. they may
2: have uh, i, I think they have any. lent support to it they, they, at least according to the one list that I saw,
0: they've issued a statement, and the Islamic group issued a statement, probably at you know Iran's insistence. Okay. But you know, uh, you, you have not seen, um, uh, you know arab governments take real serious you know economic and legal steps against israel again this is yeah. I, I mean i'm glad that it was south africa doing it because the optics are you know fabulous uh, for it and they have a lot of more legitimacy to making the, the arguments than any arab government would but the, the fact of the matter is that no arab government did um and that just shows you know, some combination of complete ineptness and complete complicity uh, with U.S. and Israeli design. So, you know, I mean, if China gets in there and does a, you know, a bit of a rapprochement between um, Iran and Saudi Arabia, okay, that's not ideal from the U.S. perspective, but look at what's going on now with, um, with Yemen.
1: Right. I mean, the U.S. is now bombing Yemen. Um, trying to scuttle that uh, ceasefire agreement between the Saudis and Yemen uh, that yeah. the Saudis seem to be pretty intent on maintaining. Right. Right. So,
0: I mean, it could be, again, that, you, you know, I mean, Israel and Israel, I mean, this is an old Chomsky point. I, I, Israel was functional for and, and there are good people on both sides of this that I think, you know, have points um But Chomsky's argument was that in, you know, by by crushing Nasser, um, you know, Israel showed how useful it was to the U.S. establishment um, that uh, it could, you know, stop Arab nationalism um, and therefore allow for U.S. dominance of the Middle East um, and you know, there could be legitimacy to that. There's an incredible cost. There's an incredible cost to the US public. There's an incredible cost to instability. There's an incredible cost to, you know, the, the chances for global war, uh, but there are benefits, you know, um, you know, in terms of military industrial complex and a lot of other in methods of control and erosion of civil liberties. I mean, all of the things that we think of as costs to some people are benefits of of u.s policy
2: so where do you see this do you what do you we're all kind of like trying to read the tea leaves here at the is it seems to be really damaging biden politically and if it gets into a wider war it does i don't see how that benefits biden quite the opposite I mean, what is is the U.S. trying to restrain them behind the scenes or did the U.S. plan this as a way to like somehow have some gambit that might save them from the humiliation of just having the whole world focused on watching what's happening in Ukraine, which is a debacle, the the magnitude of which has not sunk into the to the American public yet at all. I mean, I don't I've never seen the uh, U.S. in such a bad position the, the the empire in such a bad position in my lifetime.
0: Yeah, I mean, what do you think?
2: What do you think they're trying to do vis-a-vis Israel? Are they, uh, or do you have any strong opinion one way or the other?
0: Well, you know, I mean, there there are some ways where for me it gets completely insidious. Yeah, I, I, I was. um
2: Well, that's a given, of course. I mean, it, it,
0: I mean, yeah, I mean, like like, I, I was on a panel a while back, um, and. and um, you know, the the moderator asked, how should Ukraine be resolved? And I said, it should be resolved by complete Russian withdrawal and complete dismantlement of NATO. Putin gets to say, I won. NATO is dismantled. We no longer feel threatened. Um, And, you know, and You know, and and then, you know, if there are, you know, areas of Ukraine that are Russian speaking that want a level of autonomy, presumably Ukraine will respect that. Um, And, you know, uh, Max Blumenthal was on the panel and he was just like, you know, he wanted to cut off this discussion Um, and. All of these so-called powers benefit from a system where ultimately it's not about the rule of law, right? You know that that that, you know the the U.S. and Russia. I mean, I'm far more critical of the U.S. uh, than I am of Russia, but they both depend on their nuclear weapons to assert their power. Um, You know, uh, China depends on its economic might to assert. But Russia
2: doesn't threaten people like the the U.S. Just says we're going to nuke you. I mean, the U.S. threatened to nuke Russia in 1946 when they were still supposed to be allies. Russia's basically we have nukes, so you can't invade us. That seems to be about the extent of it the u s is like threatening the nuke people on the other side of the world based on things they're doing on the other side of the world i mean i don't no. I don't think they're exactly equivalent, but no they... I, I I would adamantly insist that
0: they are nowhere near equivalent, but it's there yeah, it's there um you know i mean they they both wanted to stop meaningful efforts at nuclear disarmament. Right. They they want to, you know, you know, put it under, you know, salt. But I mean, they're even getting rid of their, you know, salt treaties now, um, mostly at the US behest, but occasionally by Russia as well. Um, and they're both against nuclear weapons being treaty, for example, which I which I have, I have different criticisms of. Um, so. You know, so th- th- there's a bit of collusion on the world stage between the powers in that they don't want a, necessarily a genuine law based system. And China but does
2: call for that. I mean China does, does call, call for, for a world based system and the, and the Russians as well. I mean most it, of the BRICS statements are saying that we should have an international order based on international law. Right. They're um, saying
0: that and I hope that they mean it. And South Africa has now potentially broken through the precipice and actually done something. Which indicates that they might actually mean it. Um, so that that that's why we're at a tipping point here, right? It is if South Africa is successful at the ICJ, then the, these can at least be meaningful institutions on an interim basis, at least towards a actual decent world <laughs> where we I can know. be assured that a genocide will not happen for example
2: i mean it's um, it's, ho- it's so it's so it just makes you want to bang your head against the wall because it's like these are whenever you hear people mainstream sort of normie people saying like oh it's such a complicated problem we just can't solve it it's just all ridiculous it's an easily solvable problem if there's the political will for it you know i mean this the
0: Right. There's a there's a tremendous political will to keep the machine going. I mean, I don't know when we're going to air here, but I mean, just over the last 24 hours, Israel, uh, Israel put up its defense at the International Criminal, uh, at the International Court of Justice against the genocide charges. And just before that, the U.S. bombed Yemen. Um, I think that's interesting timing. Um, it looked pretty choreographed. It looked pretty damn choreographed. Uh, so they didn't, the Biden administration, you know, figured that the Israeli case was so pathetic <laughs> that they chose that moment to bomb him. And I'm not even going to get into the fact that, you know, Trump went crazy in the, in the courtroom uh, the day of the South Africa thing um uh the day that they put forward their case wait what, what, what I, I miss with trump trump went nuts uh, in his court case uh like that he wasn't supposed to speak and the judge told him not to speak and then he started speaking and the, <laughs> i mean and that's what all of the legal reporters were focusing on the day that south africa ah, interesting
1: <laughs> argument yeah um uh, I, you know, because it, it was not aired on uh, CNN, on BBC, for people yeah. I've seen. I, I was yeah. looking uh, not harshly no, it was, for it, but it didn't it exist. exist. Yeah. And, and, and th- their
0: decision not to air it was before Trump's antics in his courtroom. But, um, you know, I mean, I don't think even C-SPAN aired the damn thing. Hmm. Um, you, you know, it was just incredible. And, and the BBC, I'm told uh, by people i think are serious on twitter bbc and sky tv neither of them aired the um uh south african um thing but they did air the israeli defense i mean just that's uh, despicable but yeah what do you you expect
2: yeah
1: i mean the the case was so airtight that any serious person who heard it who heard even a sliver of it even seeing the clips on like you know floating around social media it's like this is. This is damning beyond any other legal case uh, on this international stage.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's where I think that they're just screwed, because I I took uh, at Temple University, my one history course that I got to take as a graduate student was Cold War history. And my professor was a former deputy director of intelligence who actually was a good guy as these things go, because he was brought in specifically to draft that NIE Uh, To oversee the drafting of that NIE on Iran around 2007, which basically was put in to sort of, you know, uh, take the legs out from under the the neocons at the time. So there was some pushback at the, even in the Bush administration, there was some nationalist pushback that wasn't pro-Zionist that was trying to restrain these lunatics. It's around the same time that Brzezinski went in front of Congress and said, hey, uh, we better be careful. There's going to be a a terror attack. It'll be blamed on Iran. And then these nuts are going to start a war. Like that was that same time right but that that's a little digression so that's but to me i just want to mention hey interesting there is some out there are some elements in the higher circles even under bush that they were able to mount this kind of a pushback to stop a more disastrous escalation of the 9 11 wars but what we what i read during that time period was really all stuff about the U S trying to engage in public diplomacy in the third world, trying to counteract like people like Paul Robeson and Malcolm X saying, we charge genocide and all that. Right. And that they actually cared about the position of the third world. But today that that opinion or the, the global South in general is actually more, has more wherewithal than they did back then. And the U S is in a worse place and they don't have any anti-communist excuse for anything. It's like that, Sort of sensible imperialism, which is still sinister in what the U.S. was doing, but they're not doing that anymore. And and they can okay, you don't show the you don't show the uh, clips in you don't of you know, the trial in the U.S. You pretend it's not happening, but the rest of the world is is going to be paying attention. It's going to affect what the the opinion of the United States, and that's that matters more these days because the power balance is changing. I I just feel like this is this it this it, this tendency to just pretend like everything is fine and everything is great because we've been so powerful that always carries the day but they're approaching the time when that is changing and and what is going to happen that's what i mean when you're saying i guess i'm just echoing what you're saying about a tipping point in many ways i i don't see how the logic of this suits the people that are doing what they're doing uh, on the u.s and israeli side
0: Uh, i mean it, it I and mean, we're talking about bbc and sky tv i mean i don't know how much i mean we, we've seen strong statements from leaders from say columbia for example um and others um but i'm not sure how much the global south necessarily has seen of this i would think that they've seen a fair amount but i don't know that i wish i did know that um you know, I mean, I was able to see the South Africa thing. I couldn't find a, you know, a feed for it initially when I you know got up at four in the morning. Uh, and then uh, somebody on Twitter had the South African broadcasting feed. And that's how I that's how I watched it. Um, and then I think I think Al Jazeera did carry it. But I mean, you do have uh, you have all of these methods of control. Al Jazeera English, for example, wouldn't touch the notion. I tried to get them to cover the possibility of invoking the genocide convention, going to the ICJ for months. And I would tweet criticism of them for not having covered it. And I would, you know, go to the people who were regular guests on there to try to get them to mention it when they got on air. Um, you know, I, did, uh, I but nothing happened. As far as I know, Al Jazeera English, I think there was some mention on Al Jazeera Arabic, but Al Jazeera English, which is a go to thing for, you know, enlightened, you know, yeah, for liberals, um, but
2: but left liberals,
0: that they they would not tell you that this could be done. They would not tell you that any country could go before, including Arabic countries, uh, could go before the International Court of Justice and invoke the Genocide Convention against Israel. So there are so many methods of control. There's the whole, you know, the whole big tech thing, and oh yeah, uh, you, you know. Uh, so that, that's, that's amazing. Why I, say, you I think mean, about I'm, the I'm universities,
2: trying... the universities, big tech, the political system, the news media. Right. <laughs> I'm not
0: being, you know, I'm not being doom and gloom. I'm just saying the obstacles are very real, and the methods of control and the collusions that could happen bef- between different power power centers are very real. Uh, but I think that the opportunities um, are, are also real, and sometimes you, ha- you can work with state actors um, uh, potentially, as, as this case, I think, shows. Um,
2: and unfortunately, I mean, the, the, the de- democracy in the US is so atrophied and useless that it's right. well, really going to be other states that are going to well, bring down this empire by and large. It has to be right. states, because well, who is um, organized? Uh,
0: I should go in a little bit, but I should plug, I mean, what I'm hoping to be writing about going forward is my vote pact idea, um, which is basically, uh, I mean, look, I mean, if the system has its way, we're going to spend the next year talking about, you know, Biden versus Trump, you know, with, with some Nikki Haley thrown in, you know, and that's a recipe for insanity uh and and, and and you know and for good measure they they got a back up with RFK um and you have Cornell West running saying some good things but running basically a virtual campaign I don't know that he's necessarily going to be in the ballot in a lot of places.
2: I don't think he wanted to be on the ballot
0: I don't think he does either he didn't want um, people to not like him right and uh, uh Jill Stein who's already run for president twice and gotten, one percent or something. And although she's also saying some really good things, especially on on Israel. So to me, there is an incredible opportunity if we can muster the wherewithal for a a genuine anti-establishment candidate that appeals to both the so-called left and the so-called right. Um, And to somehow combine libertarian instincts, uh, non-intervention with progressive, uh, you know, with left-wing uh, stuff in terms of civil liberties, in terms of pro-peace, in terms of corporate power, um, uh, and so on. There, I, I, think that there is a radical center in, in the U.S. that could manifest itself, um, um, but is, is being impeded and, when we keep getting sucked into this bullshit election (laughs) motif um it 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 fundamentally prevents any kind of meaningful change you know and and people are going to be defending you know uh, genocide joe if they have to uh because trump is worse and yeah they say but i
2: really i really would wonder about how much i mean look at how many wars obama and biden's wars sandwiched with trump in between trump actually had less of them i mean i'm i'm, I'm not saying he's a, a dove right. but like i don't understand how the lesser evil argument anymore it, it, it works i'm not saying that he's the lesser evil i'm just saying why would you even bother trying to split hairs at this point i i i
0: think that's totally legitimate um and, and it's empirically a fact i mean trump did a lot of evil stuff uh but he didn't start a full blown war. It, you know, virtually alone and president Biden and a half a million
2: Ukrainians, half a million Ukrainians for nothing. I mean, that's Biden is like, if Biden were sitting on a pile of skulls, it would be very, a very big pile. Yeah. Although I view, I view presidents and
0: candidates now as instruments of empire, right? I mean, Trump didn't start a war, but he did some things that no conventional U S president could have done that were instrumental for the empire. He got out of the iran deal uh he did the jerusalem move uh he recognized israel's annexation are those
2: good for the empire those good for zionism the the well iran and the jerusalem you know i I don't know that i I, I don't think that that's good for the u.s they were good
0: for the u.s as empire (laughs) you know um, yeah um so you know trump did these things that that no conventional U.S. president could have done, um, and uh, and I view you know uh, candidates that way too. Um, you know, K- you know, Kennedy is doing things you know that are running a lot of interference for the empire, um, so. You know,
2: I don't know what he's going to do if he if he I don't think he has a chance as long as he's tied to Israel this way. and Oh, I don't think he has he... a
0: chance either. But I think that he's been very functional for the empire. He's taken a lot of very legitimate grievance over the pandemic. And, you you know, you would have thought that he would have had rallies outside of places where, where they're, um, you know, doing, you know, making bioweapons um and trying to stop that and instead he's you know spending all his political capital defending
2: israel um he doesn't talk about it so much but he uh i think because he knows it's a loser for him but he's talked about it it's it's quite a bit it's a terrible i mean i've heard him talk about it more than i wanted to hear him talk about it but generally (laughs) he wants to talk about other subjects he's gonna if he doesn't change it, he's gonna lose and so it's I, i don't i'm really curious to see what he's going to do because i'm have a lot of reason to believe he doesn't believe what he's saying and uh but now as to why there's a number of carrots and sticks there that you know we could speculate about but he seems to be the only one who really knows why the hell are you doing this when it's contradictory of everything else you're saying and you don't seem to believe it either uh based um, on x y and z that i'm probably not price
0: you you've been remarkably silent bryce
2: Sorry, that's, that's I should go soon,
0: but I, I want to hear your thoughts, uh, and uh, I expect you'll say something like, "You know, uh, I shouldn't be talking about the election at all." Perhaps I don't know.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> I I, that's, I, I that's
0: do not think a bad that argument to
2: make.
1: Yeah, I mean, like that's why I mostly don't uh, focus too much on like Kennedy, Nikki Haley, uh, DeSantis. Like, apparently, there was like a presidential debate last night, and uh, I, I, I think I paid more attention to the 2012 primary when I was 14 than I did with this one, because I I just feel like it matters a lot less. But I mean, I do agree what you're saying that uh, the candidates and politicians act as, uh, uh, you know, uh, agents of empire to some extent. Uh, But then this question that you and Aaron were talking about, which is, well, what actually constitutes the empire? Uh, To what extent is, uh, are these interests actually going against the interests of uh, like the broader system. Like what, is there a, uh, like, you know, we traditionally look at the American oligarchy, like Wall Street, uh, uh, oil majors and, and others and their role in shaping American foreign policy. But we also know that there's a deeper side to that, um, that, you know, is, uh, that has its own logics that's deeply intertwined with the Israeli state. And so defining its interests is, it seems kind of impossible <laughs> at this point. Uh, And uh, because it does seem like it's a a bit of a schizophrenia like this. There is a world in which I think the U.S. could, you know, have untold wealth and power and still behave like a normal country. Uh, But the fact that it doesn't do that uh, means that there is some force that's driving it that is irrational uh, on its own terms. And and what you've been describing uh, as like an insidious force, it might be as it might be irrational or it might be rational in a sense that it's self-interested to the point where it doesn't care about everyone else. I mean, like there are whole conferences where like uh, billionaire doomsday preppers are like having conversations about how do we, you know, control security forces in a world where money doesn't mean anything because states don't exist because it all blew up. And then they're saying like, oh, well, you know, if you just control the food and uh, that means you get to control uh, everybody, or you could just uh, put shock collars on them, then you could uh, activate them whenever you want. Like, like they they have these conversations. So, is this rational? Is this their end goal that they want the whole world to be blown up and it be thrown into Mad Max, or is there uh, another level of rationality where, uh, you know, they're trying to? I don't know uh, what what did uh what was that comment that uh, I it wasn't alluded to early, but Larry Wilkerson made the comment about like a you know oh you know they might just make a disease and get rid of all of us it's like well, if that's their goal well then what's the point of all the wealth and power if if uh you know annihilating the world or uh, making it such that civilization as we know it is kind of busted like if that's yeah. the, if that's their incentive structure well then what is what is actually going on here like that's
0: i mean it's, it's a strange it is i think it is the, the question Right, I mean, we're, we're, we're I think we're pursuing, you know, different threads of how to confront the power. Um, uh, one is global, some semblance of law, which is what we just saw South Africa do. One is from my election point of view, trying to use elections to some extent to get the left and right to be talking about to each other or a thing and in terms of those potential forms of control and power i mean part of it is you know palestine is something of a laboratory uh for methods of control where you're having a literal you know occupation and checkpoints to the nth degree and surveillance and so on and so forth where you literally have people in a concentration camp and so on so in some respects solving palestine or bringing it back from the edge of insanity might scuttle plans wider plans for enslaving effectively all of humanity um so you know i i think we just have to
1: push on but but that's so strange because in pursuing that laboratory and making it what it is it's also making enslaving humanity harder Uh, like if you wanted to uh, well i would imagine that uh uh, like global instability right now, like it would be easier for the United States and its corporate elite to run the world. If the whole world wasn't saying stop this genocide, uh, it would be a, a hell of a lot easier if I was Joe Biden and Israel wasn't doing what it wanted to do. Uh, and so that's why uh, there's two, there's seems to be two minds there. Uh, Cause there is a major Zionist component of the American foreign policy establishment that's pushing the U.S. to continue supporting this laboratory, uh, but that seems to be contradictory to the interest of actually ruling the world.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But... Yeah. I think that they've got it. They, they've, there's the Israel part of it has taken a, the initiative in horrible ways. People like, they're even bad people like Strobe Talbot were not for the great game in Central Asia. Even George H.W. Bush, who's as sinister as they come, realized that this was not in the U.S. national interest. I the the Zionist aspect of the American deep state is more problematic and powerful and uh, and over determining in terms of grand strategy than people have wanted to rec- recognize. I think, but but because the, the, there are even, also
1: uh, other similarly irrational elements within the American corporate establishment. I mean, like just like the health sort of like, like like, in like the pharmaceutical. Past. Yeah, I don't think anyone is as influential and as irrational as the Zionist element. But like, take healthcare. Right. Like right. the healthcare industry sucks so much, right. uh, like, out of our economy that it makes it hard for the entire country to do business. Because every time we pay a worker, we also have to pay the pharmaceutical companies and the healthcare establishment. So there are a lot of different. Uh, but that's good for the empire.
2: That's good for the empire. I think because they the people don't have wherewithal to do be interested in politics or anything else they're so desperate to make sure they hold on to their jobs and everything else like i i I think that they put the screws to people like that on purpose because that was a solution to deal with the shit in the 60s we were on a path more for like social social democracy great society and all this i think the 60s scared them and they realized you know what indonesia actually is the better solution not denmark because we, a population that's like really desperate and precarious and trying to strive and get you know, goodies from being the mainstream establishment, that's, that's a better situation than having people who are prosperous and have the wherewithal to choose what job they wanna do because they have health insurance and housing and education. So the student loans, medical insurance, that screws you, medical bankruptcy, all these things weren't what, I mean, in the 60s and 70s, 60s Kennedy was saying single payer uh you know it was they decided i think and i and, and part of it does seem that right-wing element of foreign policy which is intertwined with zionism right uh, and it's but a, it's
0: not it's a, but i mean look at sanders right the most you know the person who's most prominent to, to say we should look like denmark Yeah. He effectively backed israel
2: um, and, and other initiatives like uh the breaking up yugoslavia right
0: so you know so that kind of shows the functionality in a sense of insidious US foreign policy in that it kind of undermines the so called you know prominent progressives in terms of domestic program
2: yeah. um so hmm. so Sam I've oh, kept the... you for longer go ahead go ahead Brian
1: yeah. well yeah I was about to say this this question of the like which forces are driving the empire and what actually constitutes the empire is one that i think we could have for like 17 hours okay. um but maybe we'll I mean, have you a back and talk that. about uh you know the nitty-gritty about what we mean when we talk about these things and you know like which powers affect which circles and which one's dominant over the others i mean because that's, that's an interesting question like a serious institutional power analysis um, but that takes a while <laughs> it does, and I got to go, Sam, through. Sam,
2: um, I really I know you're doing a lot of work right now because of everything. I mean, just in general, you do you're pretty you put out a lot of material. But now with um, this going on, this has to be not only a lot of work, but it's also got to be kind of taxing in a psychic way. So I really appreciate you taking the time here to talk with us. And how can people support your work?
0: A um, uh, best way to do it is to sign up to my Substack, um, husseini.substack.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, probably way too much, um, <laughs> and you know, post to a couple of other places. But Substack is really my backbone, and I'm, you know, trying to write there as much as possible. And you can, people can also financially support it if they're able. That would be great. Um, and um, yeah, lots of stuff planned for uh, uh, for what I want to put out there.
2: Well, thank you very much. I think people should follow your Substack, Subscribe if you can, uh, because I think uh, Sam's work is worth supporting everybody listening out there. And uh, I want to thank you again for coming on today, Sam.
0: Thank you, Bryce. Thank you, Aaron.
1: Absolutely.
2: Thank you for tuning in. Check the show notes for a link to Sam Husseini's Substack. Please visit 4 com and buy the Prologue now on Amazon. Keep your eye out for chapter one, which should be dropping any day now. Please do subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon for first access to all Devil's Chess Club episodes and for all new and past episodes of the American Exception podcast. You can also subscribe to the American Exception YouTube channel. I'm grateful that Sam Husseini was out there making the case for charging Israel with genocide, and I'm very happy that this has come to pass. It's funny that I'm a little more optimistic than Sam in some ways. Don't get me wrong. I don't discount that there may uh, be some psychotic and evil gambits up their sleeves at this point, the imperialists I mean, but as I assess the situation, I just don't see how the western imperial thug buddy alliance can possibly reverse their fortunes on the devil's chessboard.